Welcome to Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. What word would you use to describe heaven? Last time, John shared with us that he thought that the best word to describe heaven would be perfect. Today, John picks up where he left off with the second of a two-part message entitled, Why is Heaven Perfect? Now let's open our Bibles today to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off last week thinking about what makes heaven so wonderful and why is heaven so absolutely perfect. Now we know that in heaven there'll be a perfect environment. There is that now in heaven. There's no sin. There's no temptation to sin. We know that in heaven we'll have perfect bodies, perfect minds, perfect energy. Everything about heaven will be absolutely perfect. As we saw last week, one of the things that makes heaven perfect is that in heaven we will have perfect understanding. For the first time in our lives, we'll understand why bad things happen to good people and why sometimes things happen that certainly don't make sense to us down here on earth. Not only that, in heaven we'll have perfect fellowship with each other. We really will. And so many times on the earth, we don't have that. We don't have perfect fellowship with each other. But in heaven, we will. Look in verse number 4 of Revelation chapter 4. Something I didn't spend much time on last week. But John, as he's now taken to heaven, he's having this vision. He's seeing the sights up there. And he said, around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders. And they were sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. So he's saying these 24 elders, who, as we saw last week, they represent redeemed humanity. These are not angels. These are people who have been saved by the grace of God, and they represent us. So whatever is true of the 24 elders is true of us. Elders represent churches, and in this heavenly scene, elders represent the people of God. And so they are seated around the throne of God in a circle. Now, I don't know what kind of imagery you have used in your life to think about what heaven might be like, but I've always thought that when we get to heaven, we'll walk down the main street made out of gold there, and towards the back of that street, there will be the throne of God, and we will gather near that throne, and it'll be kind of like it is here in church. We will be in rows, and some, Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, they'll be on the front row, and others who've been that close to God, and the rest of us will find our place, and, and we'll just kind of be in rows like a church service. But the Scripture says we won't be in rows, we will be in a a circle, and we will be surrounding the throne of God. You say, well, what difference does it make if we're in rows or a circle? Well, if we're sitting in rows like today, those of you sitting on the front few rows, you don't have any fellowship with those in the upper level or on the side and vice versa. But if somehow we could put this platform in the middle of the room and put one, it wouldn't be possible, but if we could, one big circle, at least we could all see each other. At least we would have that fellowship with each other. Well, that's what it's going to be like in heaven. We will have perfect fellowship with each other. And as we said last week, we don't have perfect fellowship with each other now. Things separate that fellowship. And I gave a list. The first thing I mentioned last week 
that separates our fellowship with each other is distance. And it does. People move away. I was born in Georgia, but my childhood years were spent in East Tennessee. And so my first memories in life are in those Smoky Mountains, going to Neyland Stadium, watching those Tennessee volunteers. And those are my first memories in life. And a couple of years ago, I got to go back to the church where I grew up in in the 70s, where my dad was a pastor. And uh, see some old teachers, Sunday school teachers, friends I went to school with. After the evening service, a fella came up to me and about my age, and he said, John, do you remember me? And I looked at him, and I said, well, no, I don't believe I do. He said, we went to kindergarten together. Can't you remember me? And I said, well, no, I can't recognize you. Kindergarten was a long time ago. And he said, man, I remember the first day of kindergarten. He said, it's one of my most vivid memories in life. I said, well, what made it so special? He said, well, when you came in, you were crying like a baby because you missed your mother. And he said, I spent about an hour trying to comfort you and to assure you that she would be back to pick you up. I walked around with you. I patted you on the back. We ate lunch together. He said, do you not remember that? I said, no, but thanks for reminding me about how I was a big baby when I was in kindergarten. But I thought, now, you know, Jimmy Reynolds was not only my good friend in kindergarten, but all the way up through the fifth grade. And then what happened? We moved to Texas, and that fellowship was broken. And that's what happens in life. And I mentioned last week the four Ds that break our fellowship with each other. There's distance. Sometimes there's a disagreement. Sometimes there's a difficulty or a problem in life. And then ultimately, it's death. That breaks our fellowship with each other. But in heaven, the good news is we'll be in a circle and we'll all be there together. Not in front of the throne of God, but around the throne of God in God's presence, but also in the presence of one another. So that kind of gets us up to speed where we left off last week. Now let's continue on from there. Because something else that will make heaven perfect is that not only will we have perfect fellowship with each other, but in heaven we will have perfect unbroken fellowship with God. Now, look with me in verse number 5 in this chapter in Revelation. Notice what it says. And from the throne, that is the throne of God, proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. And so John is seeing an awesome sight from the throne of God. Now, this is not the fury of nature, lightning, thunder. No, it's not that there's going to be a rainstorm on the earth. This is the fury of the wrath of God that is about to be poured out on this earth for not only sins that have not been dealt with, but for their refusal to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Remember, as I've made clear, by this point in Revelation, the church has gone to heaven. And so on the earth, the only people on the earth at this time are those who've never been saved. And that tribulation period, those seven years, are God pouring out His wrath and judgment on people living on the earth, giving them one final chance to be saved before they would die then and go to hell. And so John is seeing an awesome sight. And then he says, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, what in the world is this? What are the seven spirits of God? I thought there was only one spirit of God. Well, remember in the Bible, the number seven is the number of completeness. And so what John is saying is, as he's seeing the throne of God, he's seeing these, these seven spirits of God, these seven lamps of fire, and it represents the presence of God himself, of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, if you study this, you're going to find that there are two primary interpretations of what these seven lights are, these seven fires, these seven spirits of God. There are some who will say that this is a menorah. 
You know what a menorah is. It's a Jewish uh, candelabra type thing where you would have seven candles in there. And those candles represent God. Seven completeness. Fire, light, God goes together. And so some say John saw a menorah in heaven with these seven fires representing the seven spirits of God. Others will say, no, I don't think, it's, I don't think there's a menorah like that in heaven. I think what this is, it is a reference to the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. The sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a scripture to write down in Isaiah chapter 11. And verses 1 and 2, we read about this sevenfold ministry. Let me just read this to you. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So it's talking about Jesus. Isaiah is talking about a day when the Messiah would be born. And in Isaiah eleven two, he describes the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. It says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so that's the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's describing the work of the Holy Spirit on and in the life of Jesus Christ. And it's describing not only who the Holy Spirit is, but who Jesus is. He's the Lord. And he has wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So you add that up, the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit. So whether John saw a menorah with seven candles or whether it was a reference to the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit, the, the takeaway, the meaning is the same. What John saw for the first time in his life, what he experienced in a way he had never experienced before was perfect unbroken fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There was that completeness in his fellowship with God. Now, we don't, we don't always have that in our lives. We don't ha- we, we've never had the fullness of what John had because we're not in heaven yet. But even in our lives today, we're saved. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. God the Father is with us. Jesus is with us. We know that. And there are some days in our life At least I would say this, there's some days when I feel like my fellowship with God is almost perfect. In other words, I have such peace in my heart. I have such calmness in my mind. I read a phrase over the weekend that I never had read that I think beautifully describes what I'm saying here as we think about perfect fellowship with God, and that is restfulness of mind. You've had this experience in your life. You've had days or maybe weeks or certainly hours in your life where you just thought, if God were here in the flesh, He could not be any more real to me than He is right now. My mind is so restful. My spirit is so calm. I just feel God's presence. But my testimony is, and it's probably yours, I tend to lose that. When I get that restful mind and that calmness, things happen, and and all of a sudden my mind starts racing, and and many times I'll start worrying about all the things I need to do, or maybe worrying about something's going on, and so instead of being at peace, now I'm anxious and stressed out, and I'm uptight, and it's not that I've lost God. God hasn't gone anywhere, but what I have lost is that special fellowship, that closeness with God that we will experience perfectly in heaven. I'll tell you something else we'll have in heaven, not only unbroken fellowship with God, But in heaven, finally, and for the first time, we will offer perfect worship to God. Perfect worship to God. Now, let's pick up reading in verse 6, because this gets very interesting here. Now, remember, John is in heaven, the apostle John, taken to heaven, and he's describing what he saw. He said, before the throne, that is the throne of God, 
there was a sea of glass like crystal. Now let's pause right there. We know that in heaven there is no sea. There's no body of water like that in heaven. What John is describing is the, what we would call the floor coming out from underneath the throne of God. And this floor this, coming out is so big, it is so vast, it looks like a sea. He calls it a sea of glass or of crystal. It's a beautiful thing because heaven is a very spacious, spacious place. And then he said, in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Now, the question here is, who are these living creatures? Who are these people that John sees with these eyes in the front and in the back of their head? Well, go to Revelation 5 and look with me in verse number 11, because we get three categories of, of who is in heaven in this one verse. John said, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. So we have angels. And then he said, the living creatures. And then he said, the elders. So whoever these living creatures are, they're not the elders, they're not redeemed humanity, and they're not what you and I would call, and I feel disrespectful saying it this way, there's bound to be a better way, I just can't think of it, but they're not what we would call normal angels. And I by no means intend for that to be anything negative toward angels. I love angels. I believe in angels. I've written a booklet on angels. I thank God for angels. But it appears to be that these living creatures are a type of angels so unique from the other angels that they get their own title and they're not just grouped in with the angels. Now, as we read on in verse number seven, it appears that John is describing the cherubim The cherubim are one of the high-ranking types of angels. In fact, Lucifer himself was a cherub. He was one of these categories of angels before he rebelled against God, got kicked out of heaven, and became the devil. And so what do the cherubim do? They guard things. Every time we read about the cherubim in the Old Testament, they are guarding things. They're guarding the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Symbolically, they are guarding the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and in the temple. They are guarding, we read in Ezekiel, they are guarding the very throne of God. Think about this. In heaven today, there are millions of angels. There's so many angels, you can't count them. But around the throne of God today, there are cherubim, and they are guarding God. So you say, what in the world would they be protecting God from? Well, remember, Satan still has access to heaven today. When Job was living, Satan went to heaven, and Satan talked to God about Job. So Satan, although he's been kicked out of heaven, he still has access to and from heaven. And so the cherubim are around God's throne to protect God from the devil. You say, well, does God need protection? Can't God? No, God doesn't need protection. God could certainly defend himself and destroy the devil. But the cherubim are nonetheless there to keep God from having to fight or do anything, to keep, keep the throne of God safe. And in verse 7... As you listen to this, it sounds a lot like the description that we have of the cherubim in the book of Ezekiel. It says, the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature, like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying 
eagle. You go back in Ezekiel and you read Ezekiel's description of the living creatures that he identifies as cherubim, it is very similar to this list. And certainly the eyes going all the way around their head. But in verse 8, as we continue learning about these four living creatures, we learn something else. It says, the four living creatures, each having six wings were full of eyes around and within. Now, what's interesting, in Ezekiel, the living creatures have four wings. These living creatures have six wings. You go to Isaiah chapter 6, you read about another category of angels called the seraphim, and the seraphim have six wings. And Isaiah had the vision, Isaiah 6. Remember when he said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And Isaiah is describing the throne of God. And in his description, he describes the seraphim doing what? Flying above the throne of God. So the cherubim, you still listen? Say amen. The cherubim are beside the throne of God, guarding it. The seraphim are flying above the throne of God. The cherubim have eyes all around. The cherubim have the faces that have been described here, but the seraphim have six wings. And so my understanding of this passage is these four living creatures are their own entity. It is a, somehow a combination of the cherubim and the seraphim. Now, there are some who say this is a reference to the cherubim and the details slightly differ. Maybe that's true. I think it's actually it's its own group, these four living creatures. Now, John, what are these four living creatures, this special category of angels, what are they doing? Well, look at the end of verse 8. They do not rest day or night. They don't rest, and thank God when we get to heaven, we won't have to rest either because we'll never get tired. But what are they doing? Saying, listen to their song they sing to God. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so these four living creatures are worshiping God, and they're saying holy three times. The number three is the number of perfection. They are offering up perfect worship to God. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Let me pause and say, in this service earlier today, when we were lifting up these songs to God, what were we literally doing? I'll tell you what we were doing. We were joining the four living creatures. We were joining the angels. We were joining the elders. And we were offering up our praise to God. When we lift our voices to God in worship, we are doing exactly what they are doing in heaven right now. So there's something very special about worshiping God and and singing. Certainly the preaching of God's Word is central and primary. But there's something about lifting our voices to God in worship and praise that puts us in the category with these angels, with these living creatures, with these elders, with redeemed humanity who is in heaven right now. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. So think about this. While these living creatures are worshiping and praising God, let's get back to the 24 elders in verse 10, who fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And so the elders join in this worship service. See, worship is contagious. And that's why when we have time in our service, which we had more time to just sing these songs of praise and worship to God, there's something that happens not only in us, 
But there's something that happens in others. When you walk in a room where the people are praising and worshiping God, there's something powerful about that. And when the elders saw what the living creatures were doing, they joined in this worship. And as part of their worship, what did they do? They took their crowns off their heads and they laid them down at the feet of Jesus. Now, we've talked about this before and about how in heaven, after the rapture of the church, while all hell breaks loose on the earth and the great tribulation is going on down here, we will experience what is known as the judgment seat of Christ. We will stand before Jesus and we will be judged, not for our sins. You don't have to worry about that if you're saved. Your sins were all judged on Jesus Christ. They've been placed on Him. Aren't we thankful to know that we will never have to give account for our sins that have been forgiven? But what we will have to get account for is our life and how we've lived. This is not a, an, a judgment of punishment. It is a judgment for rewards or the lack thereof. You say, John, what will we be judged by? I've thought a lot about that. I think the simple answer to that question is this. On this day, when all those who've been saved stand before Christ in judgment, we will be judged on whether or not we have spent our lives trying to do the right things for the right reason. In other words, we'll not only be judged based on what we've done, we'll be judged on why we did it. Take me, for example. Here I stand in front of you this morning with an open Bible for a half hour teaching the Word of God. Now, that's clearly the right thing to do, whether it's me, my dad, or we bring, whoever's doing, what I'm doing right now is the right thing. I'm teaching the Word of God. Here's the question. When I stand before Christ in judgment, will I be rewarded for what I'm doing, not only now, but spend my whole life doing? Will I be rewarded for that? Yes or no? You know the answer to that question? It depends. It depends on whether I did the right thing for the right reason. What are my motives? See, I could stand here today and say, well, as best as I know my own heart, my motives are pure. I think my, I think my motive is to please God. I think my motives are pure. But what does the Scripture say? The Scripture says the heart is deceitful above all things. And who can know it? I can't even know for sure whether my motives are pure. But at the judgment seat of Christ, whether I'm rewarded or whether I'm not rewarded, will be based not only by what I did, but why did I do it? Did I do it to impress you? Did I do it to make you like me? Or did I do it out of a pure heart that says my desire is to faithfully stand before the people and teach the Word of God to bring honor and glory to His name, not to me but to Him? Somebody gets up here and sings a solo. Well, there's nothing more sacred than that, to sing a song about Jesus. I mean, good night. You can't do anything more spiritual than that. Here's the question. Will the soloist be rewarded in heaven for singing about Jesus? Answer, it depends. Clearly what they did was right. But the question is, why did they do it? Did they do it to impress us as a congregation? Did they do it to help us know what a beautiful voice they have? Or did they do it to bring honor and glory to Jesus? Because on that day of judgment, when we stand before Christ, our motives, our intents of our heart will be laid naked and open and bare before Christ. And he will judge us based on what we did, but also on why we did it. That's true for every Sunday school teacher. That's true for everything you ever do. Every time you visit a hospital, why are you visiting hospitals? So everybody will talk about how many hospitals you visit. So the people in the hospital will think you love them. Well, there's some, yeah, we wanted to know, but why do we do it? Are we doing it to faithfully serve God? Or are we doing it to make points with others? Well, we can't always answer that question here and now. 
But at the judgment, Jesus will answer it because he has piercing, penetrating eyes, and he can judge the thoughts and intents of our heart. And if we have served God, not perfectly, but faithfully, and if we've had pure motives, we will be rewarded. And he's going to give us crowns. And what are we going to do with those crowns? Strut around through heaven comparing our crowns to somebody else's crowns? No, that's not even the point. That'd be pride right there. What are we going to do with those crowns? After Jesus has given us our reward, what are we going to do? We're going to take those crowns off our head and lay them at his feet. That's what these 24 elders did. What were they doing? They were divesting themselves of any honor. And they were saying, Lord, thank you. You've judged me graciously and mercifully. You've given me this crown. But God, the fact of the matter is, I'm not worthy of it, and I'm giving it back to you. And what I'm saying to you is, on that day, you're going to want to have a crown to give to Jesus Christ. We hope that today's message, Why is Heaven Perfect? Part 2, has been an encouragement to you. You can find this message and part one, along with many others, on our website, peacebybelieving.org, under the broadcast tab. If the ministry of Peace by Believing has been a blessing to you, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email to info at peacebybelieving.org. Thank you for spending some time with us today, and we look forward to you joining us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond.